Welcome to Frictionless Marketing, an exploration of how modern marketers are building their brands, reaching their audiences, and thriving in this post-advertising world. Chris Chimes is the Chief Communications Officer of Carnival Cruises. As CCO, Chris reports directly to Carnival Cruise Line's President, Christine Duffy. Chris oversees the company's internal and external communications, reputation and issues management, and executive communications. Before joining Carnival in 2018, he worked as a senior communications executive, mostly for major travel industry organizations, including, among others, Sabre Corporation and Orbitz Worldwide. He has a master's degree in public administration from the Harvard Kennedy School, as well as a master's in journalism from the University of Maryland and a Bachelor of Arts in Journalism from the Fresno State University. In this interview, Chris describes some innovative ways Carnival kept in touch with its legions of devoted customers when the company was unable to run cruises for three quarters of a full year. And he advises that the best way to be ready to communicate during an emergency is to act as though every day is a crisis, along with thoughts and best practices for DNI. Without further ado, here is Carnival's Chief Communications Officer, Chris Chimes, in conversation with Lippy Taylor CEO, Paul Dyer. You reminded me of something John Awada is known for saying at Page, which is that communications is the only function that gets to think about every stakeholder group equally. You know, HR thinks about employees, marketing the consumer, and you know, but communications thinks about everybody. Um, which, in, on one hand, is you know exciting. On the other hand, though, seems to reinforce the characterization of communications as generalists. And now you're talking about proving our worth proving our value in the executive you know, uh, boardroom. So what area do you focus? How do you, fo- you know, focus on proving worth? Um, if they think of us, you know, think of communications as somebody who's a little bit more sort of generalist. Well, well you have to be a generalist in understanding the whole organization, but you also have to understand the organization. So you have to be specialists in each of those functions and you have to get along with everything function right i mean we focus so much you know we focus so much on relationships with our stakeholders our internal clients are our stakeholders you can't communications needs to be the one who bring people together sometimes and forge coalitions of ideas um you know you can't be the bomb thrower um and that's a different kind of a role versus you know there are other kind of functions that need to play that role um, probably every company needs to have um, a Rasputin to kind of, you know, force force the tough decisions. Uh, but you know, the communicators have to ask the tough questions. But we also have to bring people together, and we have to understand their needs. And um, so it's not just you know the happy talk and issuing press releases, but kind of like, what is the issue here we're trying to solve and how can communication solve it? And you can only do that by understanding their part of the business and helping them get to the right place. So, um, so I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a big believer. I'll tell like students, you know, what's your minor most times it's marketing or some, you know, and I'm not dismissing all that, but it's like, you need to take finance classes. You know, the finance guy, you know, when you get into an organization, you're going to find out the finance team runs the whole place. Yep. Um, ultimately, finance becomes that someone in, with a finance background becomes head of HR, head of marketing, whatever else. And so 
you need to be able to um, understand and not run away from uh, the numbers and to be able to to fake it at least through a discussion uh, when it comes to those topics. So again, it, if you approach the job as a generalist, you're not you're not going to succeed. I mean, I I, I spent about four years in the nonprofit world for some personal reasons. And it was, if when you look at my resume, it was kind of a distraction. It took me a while to get back into corporate leadership roles, but for the time it was the right thing to do. Um, but I talk about how that time as a executive director of a small nonprofit, I was the CEO. I took it, I learned how to be a better executive. I, you know, I wrote an HR manual. I had to make financial decisions every day. I had to confer with lawyers about our, you know, 5013C stat, whatever else. And so that experience made me a better executive when I came back into a corporate setting. Um, but that's how I think communicators need to approach the job. It's not just, hopefully I've seen it, hopefully I'm, I'm seen as a decent business guy, not just a good communicator. Well, and it's interesting, you know, what you're describing is in many large companies, common practice for people on the marketing track, right, would be to have them spend time in sales and spend time in the field and supply chain and in different roles and really get exposed to the whole business. It doesn't seem to be as common for communications. And I think that's a great reminder of the importance of knowing the business. Um, I love, by the way, the quote that every company needs its Rasputin, but it shouldn't be the communications person. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and I was, a, I was having it like, who am I trying to, who am I trying to, what name am I trying to pull out of, pull out of uh, my head? Right? Sure. So you, you said um, in your very first answer there, you said that um, communication should be an honest broker with the executive team. And then you just made a comment a few minutes ago about bringing people together. Right, building relationships, bringing people together. And these two things um, seem to lead us in the direction of inclusivity, right? which is a big topic of conversation in all companies today. Um, and something that the communications leaders are oftentimes being um, you know, looked to, um, to either set the policy or at least um, set the tone for. Um, so I'm wondering if you can maybe talk a little bit about how are you addressing inclusivity um, at Carnival and, and how important do you anticipate it being, um, you know, in 2021 and beyond? Well, we have a very unique work setting in that we've got 40,000 employees from 120 countries around the world. So we wake every, up every day and diversity and inclusion is just part of our DNA. Um, most of our onboard team members are from uh, foreign countries. We have a fair number of Americans, but um, a lot of a lot of our, our crew members are, are foreign employees, um, and they are quite used to working with a variety of uh, types of people, ethnic groups, religious groups, backgrounds, and uh, that then spills over to our guests in that everybody feels welcome. So, uh, you know, I think we start in a better position than other companies that have a much more homogeneous kind of workplace uh, in that we're just diverse by our very nature. And um, 
you know, then I think it plays to the next level where unlike most other parts of the hospitality and travel industry, your, the relationship between your guest or your customer and the staff is very transactional. You check somebody in, you serve someone a drink, you take someone to their table, you know, you might exchange a thank you, whatever else, but then you move on to the next guest. Our employees on board our ships literally go on vacation with our crew or with our guests, right? They're, people people choose a cruise because they like the cruise director, because they choose a cabin, because they want a certain room steward. Uh, we just are finishing a little project, again, trying to keep our guests engaged because we are now into our ninth month of no operations and generating no revenue. And we're trying to keep our customers enthused about us. Um, so we decided to do, we've got about 3,000 uh, team members on the ships at minimal staffing right now around the world, maintaining the ships as needed. Uh, we started a Christmas card campaign with our guests. And so we've gotten probably 5,000 Christmas cards from our guests that have been mailed in that we're going to distribute to our crew on board. Um, it, one of those moments and it, that shows the power of how our customers feel about our company and most especially about our employees. So it, it, getting back to your original question, we always have to stay true to it. We have to look for things to make sure it's better. We can't take things for granted. Um, we were just in the process of updating some procedures and some of the onboard job descriptions were written in a kind of a he or she kind of way. And I was trying to move things to a very generic, you know, they, and the comment was, well, we, we don't have any, I don't know if we have any hosts at the restaurant. They're all hostesses. And I said, well, of course they are because the job description says it's a hostess, <laughs> okay? So a male's never gonna think to apply it for that job because they think it's, you know, and so that was an easy fix, but it's like always looking for those kinds of things that might be um, left over some 20 years ago that just nobody bothered to update, but we're always looking for those kinds of things. We um, have, uh, done a lot with regard to making available during this time uh, sur uh, support for our crew that's on board and has remained on board without guests and isolated. And so we started some, we didn't call them religious services, but we wanted to you know, start some spiritual services where people of all faiths could come together. We were very careful from the beginning to make sure we didn't categorize this is anything other than a, a spiritual service or spiritual um, uh, discussions where everyone was welcome. And I think we do that pretty effectively. That's great. Those are great examples. Um, you, know, you, you talked earlier about the importance of getting to know the finances and understanding the business. And you yourself, you've got a master's degree, you went to business school, so at any point in your career, did you expect that you were going to be in communications for a company that had no business for nine months? Uh, no, this is a <laughs> brand new experience. Um, 
you know, I've been in travel for most of my career. I started in politics. Um, and I've, I've stayed in travel almost by accident. I've tried to get out of travel a couple of times, looking at other opportunities, but keep getting pulled back. Um, this is, this is really the kind of the culmination, the situation is kind of the culmination of so many things I've learned over the course of my career. Um, you know, I worked through 9-11. Um, I've worked through industrial accidents and airline accidents and other kinds of situations. But as horrible as 9-11 was, there was a bottom and we knew when it was time to pivot to recovery and not to dismiss the, the, um, the tragedy and the lives that were lost, but you could move forward towards the light. This has been a situation where, you know, the bottom keeps getting lower, uh, the light keeps getting farther away. Um, and so it's, it's requires you to kind of, pull together all your skills and all of your knowledge and all of your experience to move quickly and to adapt mm -hmm. to whatever's, whatever's ahead of us. Um, and so that, you know, we're lucky in the cruise business because our guests and our employee and our, sorry, our guests and our, our team members, our employees love the company um, versus other kinds of industries where people are indifferent. Um, you know, I used to joke when I worked in the airline business, um, I was interviewing with somebody who had an executive position in the tobacco industry. And I said, we were always so jealous of you. And he's like, why? And I'm like, because your customers loved you. <laughs> they went to the 7-Eleven and paid eight bucks for a pack of cigarettes. And it felt like in the airline business, everybody was unhappy with you. Uh, your employees, your your passengers, regulators, the media, you know, you started with a core asset of your customers liking you. Whether or not you're in favor of smoking or not is not the subject, but you start with an asset. We have that very effectively here in the cruise business where our guests and our employees are very loyal to the company and to the industry. And so that's going to help us to recover from the situation. So when you think about those two audiences sort of in generality being internal and external, um, you know, how do you, from a communication standpoint, prioritize um, the way that you're communicating and sort of the, the message mapping, if you will, um, for your internal versus your external audiences? Uh, it starts with complete transparency. Um, you know, I have been in this business long enough to remember when there were clear silos for communications because you could... You could talk to Wall Street and say, it's going to be a great year. And then you could talk to your employees and say, mm, it's only a 2% pay raise next year because it's not, you know, things are looking dicey. And then you talk to the regulators and say, I need help on these things that are costing us too much money. And it was really hard to kind of blend all those messages and see where they were uh, contradictory. Now you can't do that. Uh, everything's an open book. You have to be transparent. So it starts with making sure that whatever you say internally, you say externally and vice versa. Um, I, I, I have a, there are several kind of chimes rules that I joke about with 
with various teams I've worked with. But, you know, one of the Chimes rules when I grew up playing basketball, my dad was a basketball coach and I coach basketball. And, you know, when you're coaching 12 year olds playing basketball, there's always one hot shot kid who comes down, dribbles the ball and shoots, never passes. And so I used to, I used to have a rule when I coached basketball, you have to pass five times before somebody shoots. You spread the floor, see who's open, develop some teamwork. And so I take that same approach here with anything we do, we have to use it five times. Share it with our government affairs team to, to merchandise it on Capitol Hill. You know, we issue a news release. Are we talking, are we telling our internal audiences? What are we telling our travel agents? But use it five times. One, that makes the message go further and more impactful. Two, it ensures transparency. But three, it really imbues a level of teamwork across the communications group because the employee communications person is thinking about those other audiences. The PR and media relations person is thinking about those other audiences. And uh, it's not that hard to use something five ways, but it, it takes discipline to make sure, again, everything you produce, you know, a social post, an update to your senior executives, whatever it is, how do you repurpose that and give it some legs? Because those are, those are channels that we own. You know, we can't always guarantee we're going to get coverage in the Wall Street Journal or BuzzFeed or whatever else, but we can certainly guarantee that we maximize our messages and our, our news to all the channels we control. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned adaptability a minute ago and, and how you've had to rely on your many years of experience during this year. It reminded me of... Um, one of my favorite quotes, and I think it's usually attributed to Eisenhower, but you know, sometimes the internet forgets he really said things. Um, but it's something along the lines of, you know, plans are useless, but the act of planning is invaluable. Um, and I have to wonder if that's even true at a time like this. So when you think about the last nine months or how you're thinking about the next nine months, what role does strategic planning play at a time like this to even bother, or is it just you know, like trying to make the most of it every day. Well, sometimes you you stumble into st- strategy through a series of tactics. Um, sometimes you're just trying to survive the day or the week. Um, but again, I think if you have some basic guidelines and rules of the road about how you operate, the strategy becomes more clear, right? So if if being transparent across all stakeholders is how you operate, that's also a strategic way of of how you communicate. Um, Anticipating, you know, we're we're gonna get out in front of every, every story that we can, or we're gonna manage an announcement uh, versus letting it manage us. That's a way of operating, but it's also a strategy because it also makes it clear to the team what we have to do. You know, we got, you know, I had a call yesterday with a team laid out a few things and everybody knew what they had to do um, because we have a philosophy of how we're going to 
operate during this time or even you know in regular times so there's no kind of like what do we need to do kind of moment as much as everyone knowing very well what they have to do because this is how we operate and this is these are the priorities so you know do we you know, we st usually start each year with like, you know, goals for impressions and, you know, number of new media markets or verticals we can penetrate or whatever it might be. Do we have that right now? No. Uh, but, you know, I think the team has a very clear understanding of what we need to get done. So I think then that becomes part of the strategy versus like lurching from moment to moment. Um, you know, I, I tend to use like, you know, sports analogies sometimes and metaphors, but you know, like I hated ice skating. I, I, I ice skated like going from wall to wall and, and I don't like to practice communications that way. I don't want to get out in the middle and do a few spins. I could never do that in ice skating, but I could do that in communications um, and just kind of keep going um, and make it look effortless and deliver the results. So the way that you described that in the beginning was sort of the operating guidelines uh, and people sort of understanding how to operate would drive the strategy. But a lot of what you were saying felt a little bit like culture, like team culture. Um, and you, you spoke earlier about how everybody's distributed, working remotely, et cetera. So do you have any best practices, advice on how do you institute culture like that um, consistency in the operating, you know, guidelines in a remote team. My current situation is um, somewhat unusual in that until I came to the company, there wasn't a centralized communications team. Okay, there were different parts of communications around the organization that was pulled together into the center of excellence under the chief communications officer. That is now the trend, right? Um, so when I came in, there were five people pretty much dedicated to media relations and kind of, I don't like the word crisis, but kind of handling the day-to-day -day incidents and events in the news and some internal communications. But the guest communications, the consumer and marketing PR events, uh, social were kind of spread out across the organization. So they're all together, but it took a while for that collection of functions to operate as a team. I've been in other places, even with smaller teams where it was still a collection of functions. And so, you know, I think over the past couple of years, we developed into a team. I think people, people felt like they were on a team that they maybe hadn't felt before. Um, and so, when the pandemic hit and we all moved to remote work, I think there was a sense of team that maybe didn't exist two years ago. So we were lucky about that. Um, then we took a group of about 40 people at the time and furloughed half of them and unfortunately had to lay off another quarter of them. So we took that 40 people and reduced it down to eight. So then we were a team in the foxhole, right? 
And so everyone was doing something a little bit different from their original job. Um, everyone needed each other. And, you know, that again fosters teamwork. Um, doing something different from their normal job also helps people grow. I mean, they were kind of having some, as hard as we were working, I think everyone's having fun kind of cutting through the bureaucracy and getting the work done. Um, and nobody said that's how we always did it before. Like, you know, we, we don't have the luxury of that. So, you know, I think there were a, a series of, of moments and opportunities that really helped us. Um, and, and then we just have gotten better about, you know, before when somebody called the last minute meeting, people thought, oh, someone's getting laid off or Chris is mad or whatever else. Now, you know, I'm just, you know, I might schedule a Zoom call in, in two hours. And I did that yesterday. I'm like, I don't have anything. Just wanted to check in, make sure everyone's doing okay. Do you need anything? Let's have free for all. What are your questions? And, and it's it's just making making um, what might have been walking around the office and checking in with people. How do you do that virtually? Um, you know, I, I tend to manage a lot by walking around. I I don't use the intercom. I don't like calling people. Um, and so that's been a challenge for me. And how do we? adapt here but i do that by kind of parachuting in and just randomly calling people texting do you need anything um kind of impromptu meetings as, as well as schedule kinds of things but it, you, you have to adapt mm -hmm. that's great and i think um, a lot of us are struggling with that same adaptation right now um just to bring us home with one thing that you've touched on a couple of times which was you know initially talking about proving worth then you talked about you started the year with impressions goals. You know, those are completely obviously out the window. Everybody's right. whatever your goals were for this year, they're definitely different now. Right. Um, so when you think bigger picture, though, about measuring the communications function, right, how do you think about measuring communications beyond obviously the, the tactical you know, metrics of impressions? Well, some of it is. I guess you could measure it, but it's somewhat anecdotal. But I mean, I know instinctively like who internally relies on us more than they did a year ago. And they and they value us and they come to us seeking advice or a solution. So I measure that. Okay. It's it's hard to put it on a grid but but i i view those things as successes um you know we can we can measure social engagement from our posts we can again but you know again what's the what's the quality of the engagement um so for example i like to i don't want to take credit for it but i like to see as we continue to book guess into 2021 even the, with the unknown about when we're going to start operating i like to think that there's an element of our success in conveying confidence in the business in answering our guest questions 
in putting out good information they understand. It's not just random, I'm ready to get on a cruise ship any day. Just you know, sign me up. People need to feel confident in the business and feel like we are being honest and transparent with the information. And that's not always very easy to do when the situation is changing very quickly. But we have a, a president in Christine Duffy who has really great instincts, uh, strives for being as forthcoming as we can. And that just sets the tone. I mean, we never have to have an eternal debate about how far we should go with the communications. The debate or the, the, the desire is always to go as far as we can. Um, so I look for those ways to measure success. Um, you know, just like if I was, if we were doing something to support um, the HR team on a recruiting effort, I'm going to look at how many more applicants we got or how many more visits we got to the recruiting page or whatever else, because that's all part of our helping spread the word about that initiative. Um, so I'm going to look for how does the how does the business partner measure success and do they feel like we contributed to it? Because um, that that you know those are kinds of things that are probably more important than just the metrics. Yeah, and I think that's a that was a great way of you know looping back to what you started with, which I took away to be essentially um, who relies on us and how important are we to them. Um, and I think that's a really just a great framework for thinking about it. And then it's interesting. I would imagine at this time that you guys have turned off your advertising since you're not you know really booking um, cruises which means that the perceptions you're talking about among consumers, the fact that they still have brand love, that they're looking forward to coming back, they're booking future trips, not even knowing whether or not you're gonna be operational. That perception it is communications. It is that transparency that's informing that perception right now, probably more than ever because their marketing tactics would have been in flight at any other time. So it's really, it's an interesting um, position you find yourself in. Uh it, it really is like we were talking about earlier it starting with those assets of of brand love industry love guest loyalty is is key here but those things aren't accidental so you have to kind of continue to build on that and that's based on a history i mean i i uh, when i talk to college students about crisis communications i say look every day is crisis dress rehearsal if you enter a crisis with a bad reputation, you're sunk, okay? So you have to approach every day as if you're going to need all these stakeholders you're interacting with. So you have to have a good rep reputation with the media before a situation. You have to ha make sure your employees believe you. You have to make sure regulators believe you. So every day you have to practice what you would normally do in a crisis, not in a manic way, because um, there are some people who thrive on crisis, but just like, how do I keep building and burnishing that reputation by just doing good work every day, having good messages, writing well, communicating well, so that when you need to dip into that reservoir of goodwill, it's there. So um, 
you know, hopefully we're a product of, of that. And, you know, there are a lot of companies that have been able to, again, dip into that reservoir of goodwill because they practiced um, those basic rules for a long time. And that's a that's a, a great way of sort of ending our conversation here, Chris, and, um, is this idea of communication's role in um, building the reservoir of goodwill, you know, both internally and externally. Um, so uh, first of all, let me just say thank you. I think this has been incredibly insightful. I'm sure you're at a really, really difficult moment in your career you know, with everything that you've been dealing with recently. And we appreciate you taking your time to share these insights. Um, it's been it's been great hearing from you, and uh, thank you. Great, I enjoyed it, Paul. Um, I appreciate the invitation, and uh, look forward to uh, how your uh, listeners think about the podcast. All right, here, as always, are some key takeaways from this conversation with Chris Chimes. Number one, it's fine to pitch yourself as a storyteller as long as your stories are relatable to finance. In business, success is measured in financial terms, and odds are good that HR, marketing, and other senior executives you are answering to and working with have financial backgrounds. That means comms people have to be comfortable with the numbers as well as the words. Number two, sometimes making a culture more welcoming to people of different ethnicities, genders, and backgrounds is as simple as changing a single word. For example, after suggesting Carnival edit the description of the onboard job position for hostess to something more gender neutral, Chris was told there weren't any male hosts. Of course, no one is likely to apply for a job with a title that excludes them. Number three, Communicating effectively during a crisis has to start long before the emergency arrives. This is a big one. Every comms worker knows that advanced planning is essential if you're going to navigate troubled times successfully. Chris takes that a lot further, arguing that every day is a crisis dress rehearsal. That means making sure you're always grooming your brand's reputation as assiduously as you would if you were actually in a crisis. A crisis is no time to try to fix a bad reputation, so do the work as far upstream as possible. Number four, difficult times can enable bonding among team members. Counterintuitive? It sure sounds like it, but it's less counterintuitive when you consider that survivors of tumultuous times can develop a real bond. Chris describes it as a foxhole mentality that gets its adhesive qualities from everyone doing unfamiliar jobs, having to rely on one another like never before, and not having to struggle as much against bureaucratic obstruction. Try to find time and perspective to observe the positive effects of this difficult time period on your team's dynamics, as there may be major lessons here for less chaotic times. Anyway, thank you as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and colleagues on LinkedIn? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at Lippy Taylor. That's L-I-P-P-E-T-A-Y-L-O-R and on Twitter at the same handle. To learn more about Lippy Taylor, visit us at LippyTaylor.com. Thank you for listening to Frictionless Marketing. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to check out Paul's best-selling book, Friction Fatigue, What the Failure of Advertising Means for Future-Focused Brands. In Friction Fatigue, Paul explains to readers why advertising is broken and provides a frictionless marketing framework to help build your brand in an era where advertising is no longer the answer. You'll learn how to protect your business against competitors and lead the pack with fresh marketing strategies that will help you prepare for a future where the consumer rules. Friction Fatigue is now available on Amazon and as a book on tape on audible.com. Thanks again for listening.